Let me just uh, welcome you to the library. My name is Troy Swanson, and I'm the library department chair. It's my pleasure to welcome Amani Wazwaz, who's one of our writing faculty members. This is part of a series that um, Amani has done for us that we are happy to host here in the library um, about um, ancient um, Middle Eastern um, Arab and Muslim scholars, which I think is a part of um, the history of philosophy that is often left out and forgotten in the ways that we tell history um, in the United States or in the West. So I'm very excited. I'm a big fan of Avicenna. So to have him um, be part of this conversation, have a Manny bring him to us, I think is fantastic. So thank you for your time and thank you all for being here. All right, everybody, good afternoon. How is everybody doing? That's great. So like um, Troy was saying, Avicenna or Ibn Sina is a phenomenal physician. He is a wonderful philosopher as well, too. But people go through studying philosophy, and they never hear from him. He's not in the textbooks. He's not part of the curriculum. And that's not fair. He contributed so much, and so did other Muslim scholars or scholars living during the Muslim era. So what I have been doing for the last two years, actually three, is we worked, uh, myself and other colleagues have worked under a grant uh, where we uh, had a grant from the Doris Duke Foundation. And I brought in a couple of lectures on Muslim scholars, and he is one of them. And so what I'm hoping to do today is this, give an overview of his life, and then take a look at his theory to prove the existence of God and the way his uh, logic and also his theory of the human soul. So these are the areas that I would like for us to take a look at. And I would like to highly recommend Peter uh, Adamson's podcast. Troy recommended his podcast to me and they are amazing. They are, they are absolutely wonderful. For those of you who are practicing uh, listening knowledge, he goes through, you, you're gonna be listening to a lot. His ideas are just absolutely amazing, intricate, but if you go on repeat and repeat, then you'll be able to grasp what he is saying because philosophy is very deep and it's very fascinating. So I'm gonna begin first. I am indebted to him and I wanna go to the life and the history of Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina lived, was born in 980. And he was born in Bukhara, in what is now Uzbekistan. And what was the culture like in, during that time? It was full of knowledge. It was so full of learning. There were so many people, so many scholars, who were devoted to philosophical discussions. They wanted to talk about religion. They wanted to talk about philosophy. And this is what Ibn Sina was doing, or Avicenna was doing. This was the culture that said, yay for knowledge, yay for living the life of the mind. And so what happened with him? Well, he had all these teachers, and these teachers were full of knowledge, and they, were, they knew biology, they knew pharmacology, they knew religion. So he had teachers that were incredible. But you know what happened? He himself surpassed them. Now I want to ask you, which one of you here has memorized the Quran? Nobody. Which one of you here knows half the Quran by heart? 
Which one of you here knows a little bit? You do. You do and so do you. Okay, that's excellent. Do you know Avicenna by the age of 10? He had memorized the whole Quran by the age of 10. Okay, so he had even surpassed his teachers. By the age of 16, he started studying medicine. By the age of 18, he was already a physician. And people were stopping by so that he could take care of them. But you know what, for Avicenna, being a doctor, medicine was too easy. Okay, a lot of people would not agree, but he felt it was too easy. To him, mathematics, metaphysics, philosophy, that is the real thinking subject. That is what makes you think tremendously. And this is what he was fascinated with. He wanted to live the life of the mind, the life of thinking. And philosophy would allow him to do that. And so Avicenna was born in 980, and he died 57 years later, having written 150 books on philosophy and 40 books on medicine. And those books on medicine are very prominent, as are the books on philosophy. So he lived to what, to my mind, is a very young existence, having lived only for 57 years. But during those 57 years, he was truly, truly fruitful. And he truly dedicated himself to thinking and learning. So what did he want to do with philosophy? He studied the philosophy of the ancients and the ancient Greeks and the philosophy of Muslim writers. And his dream, which he did fulfill, was to bring all of these philosophies together and to unify them and to add more of what the Muslim philosophers at that time were thinking about. For example, in Islam, there is a respect for all prophets, right? Okay, so what the thinkers and the philosophers were wondering at that time was, well, if the prophets are getting their messages from God, then how is it exactly that they are getting this knowledge? So this was something that they were wondering about. So Avicenna brought in what the religious people, what the theologians were also thinking about. He brought it into philosophy. So unified everything, unified, brought all the ancient philosophies and the contemporary philosophies of his time together into one whole and started thinking about it because to him philosophy and knowledge is not about him it's about him and it's about other people so his teachers gave so much to him he also had students and he wanted to give so much to them as well too so his students would ask him questions or his students would write to him from Isfahan, write to him letters and tell him, I don't understand something. Can you please clarify it? And for him, it would give him the idea that when I am speaking about this argument in philosophy, I am being maybe, maybe 
too intricate or maybe too complicated. Let me think of a way that I could make this concept more presentable to my students. So you know, you know what they say, when you teach, you become transformed. Teaching is a transformative process. Your students also teach you. They teach you to pause, to slow down, to elucidate, and to clarify. And this is what he was doing. Okay, he wanted his audience, his students to understand, but he also wanted other people to understand. So what he would do is this. In his philosophy, he would write logical arguments in a very logical way. So this attracted whom? This attracted the religious theologians because these logical arguments were what he was really interested in. But he wasn't only writing in strict logic argument. He was also writing in allegories, symbols, symbols and stories. So who was attracted to him in you know, the Muslim world? People who were mystics liked these allegorical stories, these stories and symbols. He also wrote poems. He took the, he's, these philosophical ideas, put them in poems, put them in logic, the philosophical ideas in logic, so the theologians understood them, the philosophical ideas as allegories, the mystics liked him, and then theological ideas as poems, and then what you have is the literary people liked him. And so what he was doing, intelligent gentleman that he was, he was reaching as many people as possible. Well, in his autobiography, he stresses so much how much he learned and he studied and he studied on his own. Why? He wanted to stress how much all of us can reason, all of us can think, and all of us can become educated tremendously. And this is what he prized tremendously. He prized for everybody to self-reflect and to have self-knowledge. Lo and behold, who was it later on that became attracted to his ideas? You had European scholars becoming very attracted to his ideas. And John Locke, the famous European philosopher, who also happened to know Arabic and who had read up Avinasena's ideas, was also interested in this idea of self-reflection and gaining self-knowledge. So here you have it, a man who dedicated his life to studying. And he wanted to know, the world, what is it made up of? How can he use philosophy to prove the existence of God. And one of the main contributions that he gave back to the world and to the people of his time is he set this theory to prove the existence of God. And so he gave this back to the world. And what Avicenna did was the following. So Avicenna looked at the world. The giraffes, they're there. They exist, and so do the elephants, and so do the zebras, but they could have easily not existed. They could have failed to exist, okay? Human beings were born, and then we die. So 
each and every single one of us, we exist, but we could have easily failed to exist. This applies, Avi Sana said, to everything in the universe, from the animals to the plants to the clothing that we are wearing. It exists, but it could have easily failed to exist. Human beings easily expire as well, too. None of us are necessary, okay? So he's not saying it's not about value. It's not about worthlessness. Just think like Avicenna. He's aiming to prove the existence of God, so he's going to look at the world around him and how does this world look like, okay? So the dogs, the cats, the rivers, the trees, human beings, not necessary, but class also not impossible. Could have easily failed to exist. What did he call this? He called all of us. All of us are contingent. We're neither necessary nor impossible. None of us are necessary nor impossible, okay? We exist, but we could have easily failed to exist. So he's aiming for something. He's aiming to prove the existence of God. So now he's going to think more and more about what is around him. And so I'm going to move ahead to another major idea that he created and that he tied together to the idea of contingency, which is the idea of essence and existence. So this idea is another major contribution that he gave back to the world. This idea is one that St. Thomas Aquinas used a lot in his writing, took and modified. For years and years, a lot of scholars said that St. Thomas Aquinas was relying on Aristotle. But in 1920, a scholar said, no, this is not true. St. Thomas Aquinas was relying on Avicenna for the concept of essence and for the concept of existence. There are two major scholarly articles on the internet that discuss this at greater length. But for me, I want to give you an overview of this and show you where Avicenna is moving with this. So let's just recall, because all of this ties together, the contingent, the animals, the plants, everything, human beings, contingent. They exist but could have easily failed to exist. They are the definition. Neither necessary. None of us are necessary, but we're not impossible. So how does he then tie it together with the idea of the essence? He says this, the essence is a trait that can make us or any animal compatible with existence or not. He never says, he never ever says that this essence will prove that you exist, that you will come into being. He never promises that. He's too much of a realist. So for example, he says this, human beings, it's possible for human beings to be writers, right? We have it in us to be writers.
people, how many of you don't like to write? Okay, you, okay, one person, two people, all right? But you have it in you, okay? You have this essence in you as a human being to write. It is possible for a human being to be an artist. It's possible. This is the essence of being a human being, or one of the many essences. How many of you like to draw and paint and dance and play the guitar and all so on? How many of you are artists here? Okay, nobody is an artist except for Mike, okay? <laughs> all right. So, remember, being a writer is an essence, but it does not guarantee existence, okay? Now, I want to ask you, the essence of a triangle. Avicenna would say the triangle has three sides. This is its essence. It has three sides. Does that mean it exists? We don't know. Okay? So it can exist or it cannot exist. Okay? But he's just thinking. He's trying to break down what he's seeing around him so that he could move into understanding and proving God and the concept of God. So what he's doing is this, contingent existence. This is his next idea, basically, which means that the human being, okay, is the human being necessary? Cute, cute as this little kid is. Is the human being necessary? No, sorry, okay? All right? And, and we're, we're not thinking like worthlessness. No, just think philosophically. All right? So the human being is not necessary, but is also not impossible. The human being, all of us are contingent. Okay? The triangle, the triangle, is it necessary? In the grand scheme of things, is it necessary? No. No. It's contingent. Okay? So it has this essence that enables it to exist. It's a contingent essence. So the human being can be a writer, can be a thinker. The human being can smile. It has that essence that enables it to exist, but it's contingent because it can fail, easily fail, or continue to exist. The triangle, it has that essence, the three sides, but it can or cannot exist. So again, he's being very truthful. It's a contingent existence. Where is all of this leading him? Okay, so he's looking at different things, different materials in life, and he's looking at the round square. Is it possible for a square to be round? Is it possible? No, <laughs> okay, no, it's not possible. So what Avicenna says is the essence of the round square makes it impossible for it to exist, okay? So this would be crazy. It would be absurd. This is an impossibility, all right? Class, giraffes, can you see them eating um, dogs and cats and lions? And Are they carnivorous? No. Or, okay, <laughs> no, they're not. So they're not carnivorous, right? So this, in my statement, the carnivorous giraffe, I'm saying that the giraffe in this statement is eating 
meat is a meat eater? Uh-uh. Avicenna says, this evolves in the realm of the impossible. No, don't think this way. Not true. So you've got the impossible and you've got contingent existence. Now, what about unicorns? What about the phoenix? Don't they exist in our mind? Don't we imagine them, these magical creatures? We imagine them. Doesn't that mean that they exist and they exist in our minds? Avicenna says, no, they need to have concrete reality. So they're stuck here. They're stuck in the impossible. So here is this category. Then you have the contingent existence, the human beings, the animals, the trees, the rivers. They could have easily failed to exist. They're not necessary. They are not impossible. Let me go back. Did they come by themselves? Did they create themselves by themselves? The animals. Did they create themselves by themselves? No. Little kid, did he create himself by himself? Well, you could say his mom. And then what about his mom? Her mom. And what about the grandma? Her mom. And then we can keep going and going and going, and it's going to be infinite, right? But the universe is not infinite. Uh-uh. No. Avicenna says it is. Avicenna says the universe is actually infinite. Okay? And I'll get to his reasoning in a little bit. But Avicenna says the following. The contingent existent, existence, it didn't come to life on its own. There must have been something to bring it into existence. Since animals, human beings, cannot come into the world on their own. None of them can. And since they could have easily failed to exist. And since they did come, well, since they did come into existence anyway, what in the world, what is it that gave them this existence? Why is it that we do not have unicorns? Well, there must have been a thing to decide for us, a thing to decide that humans will come and that animals will come. And Avicenna says there must have been what is called the necessary existence. The necessary existence to Avicenna is God. But do you see, do you see how he reasoned it philosophically from the impossible to the contingent to the very necessary? The necessary existence, God, is the one who decided on the beings that are going to exist. He is the one who decided here. Now, mind you, the Quran refers to God as he, we, and they. The Quran does play around with the pronouns, but I'll just use he, okay, for the presentation. Okay, so God decided not to create the impossible, but decided on these terms over here. God is the necessary existence. Well, how did he reason through this? How did he come to understand who, who, what is this necessary existence? According to Avicenna, it goes like this, okay? The contingent existence 
needs a cause for it to bring it to existence. God, the necessary existent, brings it to life. He is the ultimate cause. God is one. Oh, wait a second. When you say God is one, which religion are we talking about? Islam, exactly. So he's drawing from his religious tradition. God is one. You cannot have God be broken up. You cannot have two gods. You cannot have multiple gods. Because according to Avicenna's way of thinking, if you have multiple gods, well then, which one came first? And which one caused the other one to exist? And if they're different from one another, these multiple gods, who and what was it that decided on their difference? So according to him, you got to have this end point, this, begin, this point where that's it. There is this ultimate higher being who is causing everything. This higher being is one. This higher being causes the existence of other existences. He is the ultimate cause. That's it. Okay? Nothing has caused God to come into existence. That's it. You put a stop there. According to Avicenna, God is all-knowing. God is wise. You know how about a few minutes ago I mentioned the universe being eternal? According to Avicenna, it's eternal. The universe is eternal because God, the necessary existent, is constantly making it necessary. Constantly. So if it weren't for God, then it wouldn't be there. Okay? So... God is wise, God is one, God is all-knowing. This is very much the way that a Muslim would see God. But he takes it and he weaves it into philosophy. God is immaterial. God is thinking. God does not have a body. Okay? So according to Avicenna, intellect does not have a body. Now, Peter Adamson the philosopher who has created all these podcasts about Avicenna and other philosophers, he takes issue with this, okay? But for now, I just want to introduce you to this idea and the way that Avicenna reasons to it, through it. And I want to tell you this. Before him, the philosophers looked at how the world looked like, and they said, look how intelligently it is designed. Because it's so intelligently designed, we can understand from the way that the world looks, this is how God is, okay? Aristotle, he looked at movement in the world. And because things and objects move, he said then, we human beings and everything else in nature moves because we are reflecting God. And God is the primary mover. So God in the heavens is moving, and we are moving as well, too. But class, Avicenna's like, no, he looks at it, class, in a very strict logic, argument, philosophical point of view. Uh, there were other Muslim scholars after him who insisted, no, go back and look at the design of the earth in order to prove the existence of God. So he brings in a very interesting dimension of proving the existence of God. Now, 
I mentioned how Peter Adamson was uncomfortable with Avicenna saying that thinking does not involve the body, that thinking is not material. I want to move into another idea of his. In philosophy, back in the day, and it continues on now, you have philosophers posing a question, and they have a thought experiment. And this thought experiment is intended to get everybody thinking so that they could arrive at an understanding. So Avicenna says this. He says, imagine that God had created a human being, an adult male, suspended him in midair like this. This gentleman cannot see. This gentleman cannot hear. He's suspended in air. His hands are outstretched, so he's not understanding that he has a, a body. And this is how he is. So the thought experiment goes like this. Imagine this gentleman, suspended in midair, does not have any sensory knowledge, cannot see, cannot hear. Is this man aware of himself? Is he aware of himself? Can he be aware of himself? This is a thought experiment. Avicenna says, yes. He can be aware of himself. If suddenly God created him, put him out in the air, this man can definitely be aware of himself. Okay, let it sit with you for just a second. He's not aware of his body. He's not aware of anything around him. He doesn't hear. He doesn't see. He has no memory. He has no sensory knowledge. But Avicenna says, no, he is aware of himself. Because self-awareness does not rest on the body. Okay, think about it. I'm going to now, you know, remind you of what Aristotle said or introduce you to what Aristotle said. Aristotle said the soul is connected to the body. The soul is a form that is part of the body. Avicenna is saying, no, the soul can definitely be separate from the body. It does not have to be connected to the body. So Avicenna's like, be careful, because all of us as human beings, we have seen so much, we've heard so much, we've got all of these memories. These memories and these sensory experiences are going to trick us into thinking that we are what we see and we are what we here and we are our memories and and we are everything that we have experienced and Avicenna says no our self-awareness there is something more to us besides this body he feels that like a lot of philosophers the idea of becoming self-aware and continuing to be self-aware how do we do that how do we honestly do that it's, it's a miracle. It's fascinating. But for Avi, Avicenna, I, I mean, I want to say and for Avicenna, it is a miracle. It is fascinating. And self-awareness is what constantly is on everybody. Everybody is constantly self-aware and understanding that they are here. And he wanted, you know, this is what he thought. Okay. 
So maybe, maybe he was trying to get back at Aristotle, but he definitely believes in the soul. Okay? So, Avicenna, a very rich, a very fascinating life, full of knowledge, full of philosophy, and he found time to take care of sick people. If they did not have money, no worries. Okay, they didn't have to pay. He looked closely at the world around him. He presented a proof of the existence of God from his own perspective. So he went around and he used logic. He also presented his view of the human soul using his flying man thought experiment. What I just told you barely scratches the surface, barely begins to cover his accomplishments. So consider this a very, like, this is, a, this is an introduction to his life and works. And my big dream is that as time goes on, you will hear more about him in your philosophy classes. You will see more of Avicenna and other Muslim writers in your textbooks. So I want to ask you, do you have any questions, any questions, any comments? Yes. Okay, I am not sure, but from what I understand, he did, um, he did exchange letters between himself and students who lived in different cities. Okay, yeah, thank you. Other questions? Oh, okay, during that time, during that time, um, the language of, of the scholars, the main language is Arabic. So yes, he knew Arabic, yeah. He knew Arabic, he wrote in Arabic. So the scholarly language at that time was Arabic, yeah. Other questions? Do you enjoy being a contingent existent? Okay, right, other questions, comments? Anybody else? Okay. Anybody? Okay. All right. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much.